Let's go back into the Word today. Uh, reminder again that this is not church. I say this every week. I will say it every week. Church is tonight. And uh, we gather here uh, in our home in Tempe, Arizona. And I would love for you to come. You can reach out to us through social media, um, through email, through the website. We have one that's under construction, but you can still access information there. And uh, if you're in the East Valley, we would love for you to come join us and hang out. It's real low-key. We just spend time discussing the Word and praying right now. And uh, so what I'm doing this morning is kind of unpacking the text that we're going to talk through tonight. So uh, we're going to read through it, study it a little bit now, and then we'll come back tonight and and pull it apart. Remember, again, as always, our theme here through this study, Colossians 3.3. 3. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, let me read the text today. And that's going to be Colossians 1. We're going to catch the last bit of Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul speaking, for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might, or excuse me, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let me pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. As always, Father God, it is your word, not mine. Lord, I pray that your word does what it does, that it changes lives, beginning with my own. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this text. It's such a good one. It's such a good piece of scripture, Lord. And thank you for putting it into my life, Lord. Thank you for giving me the privilege to encourage others with it. Thank you for those who have poured into me over the years and helped me to understand uh, Christ in me. Thank you most of all for that, Lord Jesus, that you would save my life, that you would live and indwell within me and call me your own. I pray that, Lord, my life always um, reflects that, especially at the cost that it, that, 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 that it came to you, Lord, of the cross. Love you. Pray that you speak today through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So you've probably seen the news because it seems like it's in the news everywhere about uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. They're like suing the paparazzi or something. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me because the stupid news feeds that I follow. But it keeps popping up in mind. It's driving me crazy. But I'm, I keep seeing, I keep thinking, well, you know what? I don't really blame them. I feel like the paparazzi, in a sense, has been to blame for a, a lot of things. And, and I'm sure in their position, it's a struggle. You know, they're, they're royalty. And that royal identity comes with a lot of things. There's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of work. But there's also means... A lot of fame and popularity and things that that we see as good. Wealth, obviously. Things like that. But that same identity brings suffering. 
And that's kind of where they are today. They're never alone. There's no privacy. They can't get away. They have concerns about the possibility of extortion or kidnapping or all the things that could come with their celebrity. And and uh, it's not because of their actions. It's just because of their identity. Okay? It's just because of who they are. Now they're they're finding out that even an attempt to renounce the crown, so to speak, even an attempt to... Uh, reject the royal position, uh, it didn't remove them from their identity. It didn't change that at all. Uh, they're still associated with the crown, whether they say they are or they aren't. And, and in a lot of ways, not exactly, but in a lot of ways, there's a similarity with us. We're part of the body of Christ, okay? It's him who is the head. He is the crown. He is our heritage. He is our identity. And that comes with awesome power and awesome authority for us. But it also means responsibility. It also means hard work. And if we're truly associated with him, it's also going to mean suffering because of who he is. All right. So today we're going to kind of jump back in here with this theme of knowing who you are. And we're going to look at the power and pain of Christianity and, and Paul's kind of explaining here to these Colossians uh, that he's linked to Christ. This is kind of where he's going. For the sake of Jesus expanding his church to all nations. And that means, Paul, for Paul, that means having the power of God but united with hard work and suffering. All right? And as Christians today, as I think Paul would say to the Colossians, as Christians today, we need to realize that that power... That power uh, that comes from Christ in us, we have that power. We need to recognize it. That comes from Christ in us as Christians. But we also need to fully embrace what else comes with that, which is the suffering, the struggle, the hard work of sharing the gospel and making disciples of all nations. So we're going to look at uh, three words that often are left out of discussions about being a Christian, but they are very powerful words. Uh, and here Paul addresses each one, suffering, mystery, and struggle. Three just one-word topics here. And they all sound negative, you know. They all sound negative. But remember, Paul's tone here is encouraging uh, to these believers here. These are new believers, but they didn't grow up in a biblical world. And so Paul's not cushioning the talk here at all, but he is celebrating what Jesus is doing in them. All right. So let's start with the suffering. The first one, Colossians 1 verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh. That means physically is what he's saying. I'm physically I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. So what's lacking in Christ's suffering? You know, we'll, we we tend to focus really quickly on that lacking word. It strikes us, but let's not skip over the other word he said, that word suffering there, right? Paul's not talking about, Paul's not suggesting that the cross wasn't enough. Paul's not suggesting that the atonement and, you know, the debt, Christ's death on the cross was not enough to atone for sins. That's not what he's talking about. Nothing was lacking there. Jesus said it himself, right? On the cross, it is finished, complete, done, accomplished. It's, it's done. So Paul must be talking about something else, clearly. We'll come back to that in just a second. But how can Paul 
or anybody for that matter, say, I rejoice in suffering. I mean, let's just be fair here. How do you say that? Well, I, you know, I can give you two reasons from the text that I believe he's saying that. One is for the sake of others coming to the faith. You know, the suffering for the sake of others who are coming to the faith. You put that in realistic terms. If Do you know, as a believer, do you know someone who is lost? If it's a family member, somebody you love that doesn't believe, what would you be willing to suffer for their salvation? Would you rejoice in making their salvation possible, even if it meant suffering for you? I would think so. Uh, another reason here for rejoicing and suffering is for the affirmation that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That suffering becomes affirmation that you are associated with him. And that's where he's going with this uh, filling up what Christ is lacking thing. What does he mean by that exactly? Filling up the afflictions of Christ in his physical body. Um, again... Christ wasn't lacking anything. What he's getting at here is Christ is not physically, at Paul's time or now, but let's speak from Paul's time, Christ is not physically here anymore. He's not there. Instead, his church is. Paul is. They're already there. And the experience of suffering that would be spent on Christ, okay, listen, in Jesus' physical body, is still being spent on Christ but in Paul's physical body, as Christ's body. I know it was a lot, but did you follow what I was saying? That the experience of suffering that would have been spent on Christ in Jesus' physical body, which is not there now, is still being spent on Christ, but in Paul's physical body because Christ is in Paul. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you're, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Uh, the head, he's the head, we're the body. One suffers, all suffer. That's what Paul's saying. And so, if Christ is in you and you're suffering, then guess what? He suffers also. Um, remember what... He said to Paul when when he addressed him on the Damascus Road, he said to him, called him by Saul at the time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's a sense that Christ's unity with us is fully connected even in suffering. Joseph Son, a, a man well acquainted with suffering, wrote an incredible book called Suffering, Martyrdom, and, the Rewards, in, and Rewards in Heaven. Said a lot about it, and, and I'll, I'm just paraphrasing some of what he said here, but one of the thoughts that he expressed with this verse, he said, when, when, and I'm, again, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, but when one part suffers, all parts share in it, including Christ. Okay? So we're not filling up his suffering as though ours is more powerful than his was, or, uh, accomplishing something that he left undone. Not doing either one of those things. We're filling up or sharing in the present suffering that he presently experiences. He, Christ. We are filling up the present suffering that he, Christ, presently experiences as the head of the body. So we, as the body, experience it. 
It's a continuing measure of suffering that he still, Christ still endures today. However, it's through his body, which is us. All right, you following that somewhat? It's not that his atonement on the cross was incomplete, but think of it this way. His, Jesus' suffering is unfinished. It's not that the cross was incomplete, but his suffering is unfinished because his suffering continues through his body, which is the church. That's where Paul's coming from. Or maybe think of it the way John Piper put it. When we suffer with him in the cause of missions, we display the way Christ loved the world and in our own sufferings, extend his sufferings to the world. This is what it means to fill up the afflictions of Christ. And you've got to remember something, guys. We're no different than Paul. We're no different than the Colossians or any other believer since. Whether it's being fed to lions, whether it's being uh, murdered by unbelievers, tortured by foreign governments, or just being ostracized by our own people at home. Whatever the cost is, whatever the cost is of spreading the gospel as part of the body with Christ in us should be something we expect to participate in filling up. Understand what I'm saying? Whatever the cost is of sharing the gospel as part of Christ's body with him and us, it should be something that we expect to share in filling up. All right. And one more thing here, by the way, notice in that verse, Paul says it's for the sake of Christ's church. It's for the unity of the body to the body for the body. Jesus Church is Paul's entire focus and Paul's burden here, okay? All right, so suffering, move on to ministry, or ministry, mystery. Move on to mystery here. Look at verse 25. The church of which I became a minister, or servant, that's that word servant, speaking of the church of which I became a minister, servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, Talking about the Colossians, but he's being more more broad here, and you'll see this in many. He's referring more to Gentiles in a broader sense to make the word of God fully known. Paul here in in just this little section is given the responsibility from God to serve via suffering, which he said here, the Gentile church by making the word fully known to them. The Gentiles did not have scriptures; they didn't grow up in a world of scriptures like the Jews did. Uh, and so he's speaking of his role in making the word fully known to the Gentiles, but, but, the, but it's a little more confusing. Like, what do you mean fully known? What, where is he going with that? Well, he says in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Two times there. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When I was a kid, I loved the Hardy Boys. Probably most of y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you might, but I love the Hardy Boys. There was also Nancy Drew. These are books, by the way. There was also Nancy Drew, but I was a dude, and so there was no Nancy Drew. You know, I was into the Hardy Boys. I also love, like, Sherlock Holmes stories. Obviously, my favorite cartoon was Scooby-Doo, and yes, I mean cartoon, not animated stuff. It's also, uh, you know, I like the harder stuff too, like Alfred Hitchcock and some of the more, 
uh, disturbing things, but, but I always love those kind of movies and books and stuff like that. Lately, Molly's been watching in the world of Netflix and Hulu because of the COVID reality that we're in. <laughs> Molly's been watching some old uh, show called Veronica Mars, which is basically about a high school girl who's also a detective. Not real old. It's just a maybe... 90s or something. I don't know. I don't know when it came. Anyway, I keep getting caught up in it when I walk by because it's silly. But at the same time, I'm curious to see what the twisted mystery is and how it gets revealed. Then, well, Paul is not talking about a murder mystery here. Paul's not talking about aliens. He's not talking about paranormals. He's not talking about finding a kidnapped person. He's not talking about ghosts or any of that junk. He, he's talking about scripture. Paul is talking about scripture and the full understanding of God's eternal plan from forever to forever. Paul is talking about scripture and fully understanding that eternal plan, a plan that until Paul's lifetime was hidden. He said so himself. Uh, But in Paul's lifetime through Christ, it has become this, this grand plan that's in scripture has now become more fully known. Mystery used two times right there in those two verses. It's actually used four times in the four chapters of Colossians. So it's a big word for Paul. He uses it a great deal in Ephesians and other places, but I won't, I won't hop to all of that everywhere it's there. It's just, Paul uses it a lot. Mystery basically is, think of it this way. It's the word of God more fully known. Okay, it's the word of God more fully known. It's not some supernatural revelation of something that didn't actually exist. It's not like you're taking letters and translating them into numbers and signs and symbols and coming up with who's going to be the next president. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, it's not some kind of imagery, crazy stuff like that. It's not necessarily a new promise or a new understanding. It's just a complete, think of it that way, a complete of understanding of something that until now was not fully known. All right, a complete understanding of something that was not fully known, and it couldn't have been known apart from divine revelation, but that was due to come relative to God's timetable. So God's the one in charge of the timetable here and how all this is going to work out. And so the mysteries that Paul is talking about are things that were there. They just weren't fully seen, known, or understood because of Christ or God, well, be Christ, but God's progressive revelation of His eternal plan. Okay, that, that's what He means. For instance, think about Abraham. Imagine what Abraham knew of God. Uh, and now we don't know everything because we weren't there, but based on what we have in Scripture, what was Abraham's idea or knowledge of God? We we know. Uh, a fair amount of what he knew, but that, but that's it. Come to Moses. Moses knew more of God in a sense, in a sense, than Abraham did. Moses knew his name. He told Moses that I give you my name. I speak to you not as I spoke to them. I speak to you differently. Uh, Moses saw crazy miracles. Moses saw God. Uh, there, there's a lot there, but Moses, Moses time period was different. Come all the way to Israel as a nation. Israel as a nation had a different, uh, revelation of God in a sense. It's the same God. He's just becoming more revealed. You had a temple, you had a nation, you had a land, you had all these things that were going on. Think about even the disciples just in their time on the earth. As Jesus called the disciples out of being fishermen, what was their understanding of God? 
three years later, after being with Jesus for three years, what was their understanding of God? After he died, what was their understanding? After he rose from the dead, what was their understanding? And then you could say after Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit indwelled them, what was their understanding? So what I'm getting at here is think about what it meant to the Old Testament believers to hear Ezekiel say, speaking of God, speaking from God, God speaking, I mean, I will give you a new heart. I'll put my word in you. What, what, what did that mean exactly? I know what they hoped for there, but what did it mean? That's the new covenant. Ezekiel's the one who wrote it. Jeremiah mentions it too. I'll give you, God said, I give you a new heart, put my word into you. Do you think they would have actually considered God himself would dwell within you? As Acts chapter 2 revealed, that's what exactly what happened. But I don't know that they would have known that. That's where, what all that was saying. And that's kind of where Paul is. So here in Colossians, the two areas of mystery that he's saying is being revealed one it's both christ in you but listen to how i say it it's number one is christ in you like god is indwelling believers christ is in you okay the other is christ in you even you so one is the fact that christ that god is within us the other is that god is within us me Rotten David. You know what I'm saying? So let's look at that second one first, that Christ is in even you. All people. The church. That was a mystery, that he would be in the church. The scriptures always pointed to the nations. Okay, that was in scriptures. And Jesus definitely included Gentile people while he was doing ministry on earth. But the focus was always on and through the nation of Israel. Even Jesus spent his entire ministry in Israel. Think about that. He's training up Jewish disciples and he stays in Jerusalem for everything that he does. Yes, he encounters some Gentiles, but he stays among the Jews and he builds a church to to grow from Jewish people. Um, The thought of ministry being entrusted to the Gentiles. Not just that, yes, some of them believe what we believe, but no, it's being given to them with, listen, with the same equity as the Jews. So it, the thought that it, that, that ministry would be entrusted to Gentiles with the same equity as the Jews was a mystery until it happened. It was a mystery until it happened. Ephesians 3, 6, Paul said this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There you have it. The church, Jew and Gentile, body of Christ. Guess what? It's nowhere in the Old Testament. It's not there. It's not there. Some might argue that. I will argue against it. There are people kind of on both sides, but I'm, I will go to the mat with you. It's not in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. And Paul is even saying that the idea of Jew and Gentile body of Christ is it's not there. In fact, and not even in the Gospels, Jesus only mentions the church two times. Only Jesus says it and he only says it twice and both times it's to his disciples. And it would have been a completely foreign idea to them at the time. They wouldn't have known what he was talking about. To them, everything was temple or synagogue. You know, they they. they they wouldn't have known where he was going with that. And even after Jesus' resurrection, 
until the Holy Spirit came, they continued as believers in Jesus to go to the temple or to be in the upper room, but they, but they never pushed an agenda that was a church. In fact, the idea of the church was foreign to people in the Old Testament just as a huge temple building was foreign to Noah and Abraham. You understand? Noah and Abraham never thought of a giant temple on Mount Moriah in in the the national land of Israel. That that was a foreign concept to them to worship God in that way, particularly. And so, for us, Jesus has founded a church, and that for Paul was a mystery that we would be that body. And that pulls on to the other thing: the Christ in you. We. Not only did it go to the Gentiles, myself included, but he's in us, Christ in us, man, indwelling us. That was new as well. That was a wild thought. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would rush on people, but it would also leave. It wouldn't remain. The idea that in Acts chapter 2, after Christ died and arose, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, would descend and indwell a believer. And as Ephesians 1 said, would seal us. Never to leave. That that was that that was a, a piece of scripture that was hidden. It was there, but it was you couldn't have got there until Christ revealed it. You know what I'm saying? That's where Paul's coming from. Um, and Paul's saying here, it's not just revealed to him. Look what he says. He said it's now revealed to the saints, Jesus, his saints. So that's us. That means as believers, listen to me. That means as believers, we should see it. As believers, we should be able to see and understand the mystery, okay? The mystery that the gospel is to and for all nations. We should totally get that. We should be able to see that because Paul says it's revealed to the saints. So if you are a saint belonging to the Son of God, belonging to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is in you, then you ought to be, it ought to be revealed to you that it is for Jew and Gentile. The gospel is to be entrusted to all nations, First of all, and then second of all, it ought to be revealed to you and make sense that we are unified as one body in Christ and Christ in us. Okay? I'm not saying you can dime all that out or paint a picture. I'm just saying you understand that, that he is in you and you're in him. Ephesians 1, 9 says, Paul said, uh, he making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Look, Christianity is not a religion. Okay? This is the beauty of this. Christianity is not a religion. It's not a preferred choice of beliefs. It's not. Christianity is not acts of kindness or general good character. Christianity is not American. No, but I said it. Christianity, listen to me, is Christ in you. It's literally, it means little Christ. But the easiest way to think about Christianity is Christ in you. That's what it means. To say I'm a Christian is to say Christ is within me. And that comes with all kinds of implications that are much larger in scope than just doing good deeds and not doing bad deeds. Much larger than that. It means we're unified with each other. 
Because we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the church. It means we're charged with the same mission. We're unified around that. The one he came with to share the gospel, to proclaim his kingdom, to make disciples in a world that hates us and will resist. And violently at times, which means suffering. It also means, listen, that we really need to think about our sinful decisions. Listen, Paul would be brutally, brutally extreme in illustrating this. For one example, 1 Corinthians 6.15, Paul said, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Paul is painting the imagery of someone having sex with a prostitute and in doing so forcing Jesus to do it. That's gruesome, but that's the that's the point he's trying to make. That's how powerfully connected we are with Christ in us and us in Christ. Last one is struggle, suffering, mystery, struggle. He says in verse 28, him we proclaim. Notice it's a him. Not a, I mean, it's not a what, it's a who. Notice it's not a what here, it's a who, the him. We proclaim, which is another good point. We proclaim. Paul's not just saying just me. We do. We proclaim him. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice it's not just evangelism. It's discipleship. Not just evangelism, discipleship. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling. Another picture here of suffering, toil and struggle. Uh, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You ever bust your tail at something? I mean, just put everything you got into it only to see it just fall apart. Just fall apart. Or you ever put your heart into something that just absolutely flattens out into nothing? Despite every effort you have to make it beautiful and live and grow or whatever it may be. I don't know. I'm not, I started to come up with some examples, but I don't want to. Just think about it. You know what I'm saying. Um, it makes you want to be reserved with your efforts, you know. It makes you want to keep your heart from getting involved the next time. You know, keep, keep it out because I, 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 I don't want to lose passion in the future, you know. What guarantee do you have? What guarantee do you have? That your struggle is going to produce a reward for the toil that you put into it. What guarantee do you have? Paul's explaining here that our reward comes because Christ is the one who works through us. All right, We can pour our hearts into sharing the gospel. We can struggle. We can toil over making disciples. We can do that, not because it's always going to produce the positive results that we want, but because when we do these things, it's Christ who's working through us. And guess what? His work is never wasted. His work is never wasted. It's always changing somebody, oftentimes you. You know what I mean? Verse 28 there you have both, as I mentioned a minute ago, evangelism and discipleship going on. It, it, it says we, we, we proclaim teaching in order to have mature believers. They don't just go preaching the gospel. Hey, repent and believe. Awesome. Find a good church. Goodbye. No. We proclaim and then we teach. And we teach hard in order to have mature believers 
The object of the teaching here, too, is a person, not a system. So they're not teaching a program. They're not teaching a series of books. They're not teaching fill in the blanks. They are teaching a person. They are teaching people how to know somebody, a him right here. You see that? And the toiling and the struggling here is to make disciples who are mature and he says presentable to that person. That person being Jesus, obviously, right? It's almost like turning in your work for a grade here. But the scale is how much we look like Jesus to whom we're turning the work in, how much we look like him, and also how much those we've discipled look like him, not us, like him. Is the reward worth it? The toil and the struggle, is the reward worth it? Is Christ enough of a reward? Only you can answer that. I can't answer it. Is Christ enough of a reward for you? How hard are you willing to work towards that end? Why is it so hard? You know, why is it so hard? It's because our flesh wants to be in control, man. We want to do it ourselves. And we have a very real enemy in the world and in the devil. They are very real. But notice that all the toil and struggle that Paul expends is energy directly from Christ. You see that in the text? All the work is Christ's work. Again, I mentioned it last week. I'll probably say it a lot because it's kind of a similar theme to what goes on in Colossians. But in Philippians 2, verse 12, Paul said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's Christ's energy. Paul says here that Christ's energy is powerful. Powerful. You see that word? Don't miss it. It's in there. It's powerful. But remember... The context of that power is verse 28 where we started. Power and suffering are linked here. You don't get Christ's power without embracing Christ's suffering. They're joined. In fact, 2 Timothy 3, Paul wrote this in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, period. You can't get more blunt than that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says it. So let me close out with this. All right. Your identity here, Christ in you, your identity will make discipleship hard. It's going to make it hard. And and, and it's going to demand committed work. It's going to demand struggle. It's going to demand toil. It's going to bring affliction. It's going to bring suffering. All right? Not because of you, though. It's because Christ is in you. All right? It's because Christ is in you. However, that same power that raised Christ from the dead is also in you. Indwelling in you. Not to end, that power is not there to end suffering and struggle for you. In fact, he just said that it's going to do the exact opposite. It's going to bring those things. But his power, listen to me, to see the dead live. It's power to see the dead live. It's power to light the way for those who have no hope to find eternal joy. It's power to lead people with incredible depression to find the one person who created them and loves them. It is power to offer forgiveness 
to those who feel like their sins are completely unforgivable. And the power to equip, to teach, to train, and to empower disciples to make other disciples. Paul said, to that end, I struggle and toil. Never forget that what we preach is a person. It's a person. It's a who, not a what. The gospel is a person. An amazing, beautiful, powerful, graceful, just, righteous, loving person who is also king. Jesus, who loves you so much that he chose to die for you. So much that he chose to die for you out of the hands of a world that, that hated him. So while we were yet enemies, he loved us. He died for us. On a cross, about as bad as it can get. Three days later, he rose from that grave. In order to defeat an enemy that you have absolutely no chance of defeating, and that's death. Listen to me. Listen to me. That hope can be yours today. Forgiveness can be yours today. Freedom from the weight of sin can be yours today. Turn your life over to Christ. You come to him through faith and repentance. You say, I sent, Lord, I turn from my past. I set aside the past I have or the future that I have planned. I set it aside. I ask you to cast my sins, my past, as far as the east is from the west, Lord. Love me. I surrender to you. I give my life to you. Lead me. Just say whatever. Say it in your own words. Just repent of your sin and tell him you trust him. That's all there is to it. If you're already in the family, listen to me. You're part of the church. You're part of the body. You have Christ in you. You now have Christ in you, the power of God. You need to be aware of that fact. You need to be aware of it and everything that comes with it. You need to be aware that that means you'll face the same hatred from the world that Christ faced. It, not because of you, but because he's in you. You know what I'm saying? And you need to embrace the struggle. Embrace the hard work. I'm not talking about your job. I'm talking about rescuing the lost and making mature disciples. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes work. But it's not in your own strength. It's by allowing Christ's power to work through you. And by accepting that when you do that, it will also bring suffering. And you need to anticipate that. You need to anticipate that because you are part of his body. Uh, let me pray for you guys, man. Man, I love his word. It's so awesome. Lord, I love you, and I thank you so much for your word. It's so incredible. I pray, God, that you're glorified by um, by us in our lives as we, Lord, hopefully surrender to your power that works through us, that we will, um, God, that we will give up the rights that we try to claim as this being our body and allow it to be your body. Lord, that you prevent us from dragging you into sin. Forgive us when we do. Lord, I pray if anybody today has surrendered their life to you for the first time, God, I pray they would reach out to us, that they would reach out to a close, uh, good Bible-centered church if they are not local. And um, God, I pray that they would become powerful disciples for you who also make disciples. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.